0: Hi, I'm Jeremy Ullman, and this is Abstract, a podcast where I'll be interviewing graduate students to learn about their research in a way that makes it accessible, bringing into the discussion aspects that are fun but challenging, covering a day in the life, and also just throwing around cool theories and groundbreaking findings that they've come across in their readings. My goal here is to tap into the wealth of information swirling around graduate students' minds, Culminating from months to even years of research and reading, we're going to harness that knowledge together, one episode at a time. Hey, this is episode 22 of Abstract. Thanks for joining us this week. Before we hop into things, here is a quick list of the kind of topics you can expect to hear about on today's episode so we focus on the recurring themes and motifs of brain volume and shape. We also discuss quite a bit about the hippocampus, a small structure in the center of the brain. We talk about imaging techniques like MRI and PET scans, evolutionary brain development, the science behind nature versus nurture. This and much more on today's episode of Abstract, so let's get going. Nadia Blostein is currently doing a master's degree at McGill University's neuroscience program under the supervision of Dr. Malar Chakravarti at the Computational Brain Anatomy Lab. Her work revolves around examining the heritability of quantitative traits of the brain, extracted from structural MRI data, and seeing how these heritability measures relate to evolution. Abstract, this podcast. The Joe Rogan Experience and the Welcome to Night Vale podcast have gotten her through laborious hours of manually quality controlling her data. In her free time, she enjoys making coffee, biking, and cross-country skiing, and I'll also add, I believe she is fluent in Russian, which is a fun fact. (laughs) So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Nadia onto the podcast. Nadia, how's it going? Good, you? I'm good. You are a day one listener of this podcast. I was very excited to have you on. Thank you for supporting us. And uh as is the case, people who support they get rewarded. And so uh so this is this is the show. I would love to just hop right into it. So you finished your undergraduate degree last year, and you have just begun your master's. So uh something that I'd like to point out right away is on this podcast we like to have guests who are at every stage of their graduate career, and this is a special case today of someone who's just beginning. And so it's a very exciting time, and I'm excited to tap into your wealth of knowledge. That's all, all that's true, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. At the lab I'm currently doing my master's at, I did complete two years of undergraduate work at that same laboratory. So I still okay. think I had a bit of a head start on people you know, starting completely anew in the field, right. which is definitely nice and useful in terms of determining what to do for my graduate studies
0: so your undergraduate supervisor is your current master's supervisor yeah okay so that's also nice something that i think a lot of graduate students have to worry about is making sure that the fit is correct and it's going to work so you already had two years to vet the supervisor knowing that it was going to be a good fit so i'm glad that it is
1: yeah absolutely
0: That's awesome. So, you're our first guest who has a background studying evolution, which is very exciting. I myself took a course on related topics last year for the first time, and I found it extremely interesting. But just to start us off, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about the kind of lab that you work in?
1: Our lab is a very big lab, and it specializes in the development of structural MRI processing pipelines. And structural MRI is basically a technique that allows you to non invasively take a high-resolution photo of a brain in vivo. So in a live person, in a live mouse, in a live marmoset, or in a live gorilla. And so the spatial resolution is really high. And what happens is that you can basically collect a bunch of images of people's brains or animals' brains and have very large samples. And in order to compute statistics on those samples, you need to automate the process of quantifying specific properties of the brain from these photos. So that's where kind of our lab fits into this picture where we work on the concrete development and application of specific pipelines that allow you to do statistics on photos of living organisms' brains.
0: It sounds extremely complex, but I think you did a great job of explaining that. This this obviously explains where the word computational comes from in the name of your lab, Computational Brain Anatomy. So you're working with what kind of software? Just just for out of curiosity?
1: So it's called Mink Toolkit and yep. also Maggot Brain. So
0: Maggot Brain.
1: Yeah. And it's it was <laughs> actually named after the Funkadelic album, which is very cool. Okay. So the two main kind of steps in this image processing is one, you have your MRIs of say a hundred people and you have to pre-process them. You're preparing it for analysis. Mm -hmm. You're kind of cleaning the image up. So that would be a, you know, a set of tools that fit under the Mink toolkit library that do that for us. And then the second step would be to extract quantitative measures of the brain and that would fit under MAGA brain because essentially what it allows you to do is say you're interested in a specific structure of the brain right cuz mm-hmm. there's sort of a f- structural specialization it'll automatically segment that structure in your 100 scans it'll automatically compute the volume of that structure in each of your scans and then a special setting of it will also allow you to compute specific shape measures of this structure in each of your say 100 scans. So that's kind of, so step one is like preparing the data. Step two is automating the extraction of quantitative measures from your data. And then step three would be, you know, analyzing it, which is kind of a whole other ball game. And it can, you know, you can use a ton of different software for that.
0: Right. So when you're talking about analyzing structures of the brain, are you able to analyze both the very small and the very large scale structures? let's say something from down to the size of the pineal gland up to the size of an entire lobe.
1: Yeah. So when you label a structure in a scan, that's called segmentation. Yeah. Or we can just use the word labeling. I don't know.
0: Let's use labeling. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The smaller the structure you're labeling, the less accurate the labeling may be across your sample. So your sample will be several hundred subjects. And so you can definitely, you know, Analyze really tiny structures. It's just that what you find might be a bit less accurate. So an mm-hmm. example would be you have a hundred people, say, with Alzheimer's and a hundred people without Alzheimer's, and you want to see how the hippocampus, which is a small structure in the brain related to memory, how its volume is altered in, you know, Alzheimer's disease. Because you automated the labeling of this structure in your two hundred subjects. And you automated that way the extraction of the volume. So then you can do kind of a statistic, like looking at the average of the volume of the hippocampus in Alzheimer's
0: versus not in Alzheimer's. I'd like to ask maybe what might seem like an obvious question, but why is it that you're so interested in the measure of volume as opposed to maybe density of neurons, number of neurons?
1: I guess I I think we can't really calculate Exactly, you know, density of neurons. I think volume is an easy measure to extract from a large sample. Like currently, there are all of these open source databases of MRI scans of thousands of people. And so, counting actual the amount of neurons in a specific space would be a lot more time consuming, a lot more computationally demanding, and we might not be able to do this in larger populations as opposed to the volume is a very straightforward measure to extract from all of this MRI data. And then trying to understand differences in brain volume related to specific problems or specific populations is important because it just helps us gain a better understanding of the brain in general, like understanding also the shape because the volume Mm -hmm. measures when you're labeling, you're also looking at shape of different structures.
0: Right. Right. So shape actually came up, interestingly enough, in a a recent episode, I believe episode 20 with Alex Bailey, where we spoke about, I think, the London taxi drivers. These are taxi drivers who are specifically required to have tremendous memory, spatial memory specifically, kind of to understand the layout of of the city of London, which is particularly complex, the road networks. And they have enlarged, uh, or at least interestingly shaped hippocampi in that the back part of the hippocampus closer to the back of the brain is larger. So I guess that's making me think of this, the importance not only of volume, but also of of shape, as you mentioned too.
1: And the hippocampus is interesting because it can be subdivided into a lot of different subfields. Mm -hmm. So like it's one large structure, kind of like the brain, but then it has a lot of substructures. So you can also look at the volume of the substructures of the hippocampus as well.
0: You can do that with MRI? Yeah. Okay.
1: And what's interesting about shape also is that shape can be very spatially localized, so you can have a very good spatial resolution. And that kind of allows you to converge more and more with what you know about the brain on a cellular level as well. Like the long-term goal would be maybe like, oh, if this part of the shape of the brain sort of shrinks, maybe it's because we know from this previous study that the types of cells in this part of the brain are more dense. So that would explain why the shape caves in more. So that would mm-hmm. be another example of why you'd want to look at shape.
0: Right. So you're using MRI, which, as you already said, has a pretty solid spatial resolution. So we can get down to even the size of substructures of brain structures, right? So parts of the hippocampus. But we can't go down to the level of neurons. That's beyond that's beyond the utility of MRI.
1: And it's also kind of a proxy measure, right? All it does is you're imaging
0: white matter versus gray matter, What's gray matter versus white matter, by the way?
1: Yeah, so gray, gray matter would be the cell bodies so the, and cell spines, and then white matter would be axons, and axons are the pathways by which cells kind of communicate with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't have the physics background to fully understand like, exactly all the intricacies of how an MRI works, but basically what it does is that when you go into an MRI machine, it sends one giant magnetic field, through your body, I guess through your body, it's completely harmless, but it basically aligns all the hydrogen atoms in your, in your head in the same direction. And this once again, has literally no effect on you or your health. And then what it does is that it sends another pulse that can be kind of perpendicular to the original magnetic field, but you keep the original magnetic field going. And then the pulse is very' is transient, so what it does is that so all the hydrogen atoms in your brain were aligned in the same direction. the pulse kind of destabilizes them, and then they all have to realign again right with the magnetic field, and the speed basically at which they realign in the magnetic field depends on the hydrogen density in each specific voxel, so this kind of allows you to get that image, and then you 're basically just looking at the alignment of hydrogen atoms.
0: We have a real treat today, not going to give anything away. We have a special guest, you might remember him from episode 6. I'll let him take it away.
2: Hi, this is Michael Smilovich, and I'll be reading one of my poems from the collection Obscurity Squared, a series of neuroscience-inspired poems from 2017, A Simpler Time. This is 1.5, On the Mere Exposure Effect. Feathers blast through seasoned axons a stallion stranded at sea might recall, bound to sound by ancient wiring, rooted in process and taught wherewithal. Tickled in tandem these regions erupt, and sweet recognition oozes liqueur, our basket of eggs afloat in the fluid, as gentle as plastic while still immature. This fragile box in which fleeting sensation is bolstered each time it is merely exposed from today to -to day-to-day acquiring audibles entered and blueprints imposed the volta may drag us screaming teeth clenched upon rusted hooks which pierce the gleaming pockets of our whistle-prone cavities or rather tonal shades may soft approach that grace the outskirts obscure but ripe we floats with easy coached integrity Nodding along, branded by waves. Burned deep, enduring, there is no difference. Since ears have no eyelids, pried open and bare. Thank
0: you, Michael. And now, back to the episode. So, yeah, so this isn't the first time that MRIs come up, and it is it is definitely a very complex imaging technique, I guess we can call it. I'm curious to know if there is this limitation on the even very powerful spatial resolution of MRI. Do you work in conjunction with other labs that use different kinds of imaging techniques to kind of overlap and join the benefits, I guess, of using MRI versus something that has maybe even a higher spatial resolution or maybe a temporal resolution?
1: Well, so, so the thing is, so currently like what I do is more the analysis of this data. So I'm not really an expert of like image acquisition right mm-hmm. there, but we do have people in the lab working on the phys- like specifically how you modify the machines and what kind of other techniques you can use to improve your images but from what i know i think structural mri is pretty much the basis of like most imaging techniques so say there's talk about fmri right which images the blood oxygenation levels in your brain as a function of time to see what regions are active when the thing is usually you kind of superimpose that upon a structural MRI scan to get a good spatial idea of where these fluctuations are happening. Mm, Another example would be PET imaging, where you have something called, I don't know if this is too much detail, but it's kind of interesting, a a radioligand. So you design a molecule that binds a specific molecule that you're looking for in your brain. It's called a ligand. And it's called a radioligand because what happens is that when you inject the radioligand into your blood, It enters your brain and every time it binds the molecule that you're interested in it emits a radioactive signal That's then captured by the machine of the like pet scanning machine. Basically.
0: That sounds a lot less safe than MRI
1: (laughs) Yeah, but and so this allows you to see you know the molecule of interest where it's localized and at what point in time as well So you get a temporal and spatial resolution for pet imaging, but the spatial resolution is very coarse and so, usually, you also take an MRI of the same, of your patient in order to have an idea of, like, a better idea of where, you know, these different molecule concentrations are going on. Got um, it. So that's so the th- that's the thing about structural MRI. It's kind of like the base over which you can overlay other techniques a lot of the time.
0: Yeah, that's that's cool. I actually didn't know that that was the case, but that makes sense if you can get a pretty reasonable spatial resolution, then you can use that as a framework. Yeah. So given that I've been asking you a lot, I've just been indulging myself in asking you all the questions that pop into my head. I'd like to zero in more on what your expertise specifically is, which you said is the computational side.
1: Throughout my undergrad, what I was looking at was the heritability of different traits extracted from brain MRIs. To tie this in with evolution, like it requires a bit more background building, I think, but basically, so heritability is defined as the proportion of the variation of a trait that's attributable to genetic effects as opposed to environmental effects.
0: Can you say that one more time, actually?
1: So uh, heritability as, is defined as the proportion of variation of a trait attributable to genetic effects as opposed to environmental effects. So the model I was using was a twin and non-twin sibling design. And so the intuition behind such a design is that, say, you, ha- you know the brain volumes of a set of people that are either twins, pairs of identical twins, or non-twin siblings. So identical twins, on average, share 100% of the same genes. Non-identical twins, on average, share 50% of their genes. And so if you look at the total brain volume of the identical twins, And see that it's a lot more similar than the total brain volume between two non twin siblings. You can then assume that genetic effects are important in controlling brain volume. Mm -hmm. But if, say, you know, you compare the total brain volume in two twins and they differ just as much as the brain volume within a pair of non twin siblings, that would mean that maybe genetics are not that important in controlling. Total brain
0: volume. So if we really want to just dial this into like the most general single sentence, this is basically a discussion of nature versus nurture, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. It's like a quantification okay. of it.
0: Perfect. Yeah, we're getting to like the, the science behind nature versus nurture here, talking about specifically brain volume. Yeah. Right. My, me and my sibling, whether or not we share all of our genetics or just a part, have grown up in the same environment. And so that's a constant that you can control for. Yeah, Right. The only thing I guess that's not taken into account there is the differences in the environments between pairs of children, right? Every pair of children is going to have a different environment. So how do you, how do you reconcile that?
1: I was reading this. I mean, this isn't part of my work, but I was reading a bunch of research done on twins that grew up in separate environments completely and turns out identical twins. And turns out that they were like uncannily similar. And I don't know if these are specific outlier Anecdotes. Like I, I, I haven't looked at actual research papers on this. I've read it about it in books, but in general, I guess it shows that genetics are important in determining brain volume. But to to answer your question of parsing whether you know unique versus shared environment in twins or even siblings, uh, is that the model basically accounts for that?
0: What I'm curious to know is what are the parameters that go into the model that you use. In your statistical analysis? Are there specific parameters that you could pinpoint?
1: Unique environment, shared environment, and additive genetic effects. Those are basically the three parameters you're optimizing for, right?
0: Perfect. Yeah. Because what you're talking about right now is your is, is the model you worked with in your undergrad, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. So you're not just doing research on humans, right? You have found mri scans of lots of different kinds of species right
1: yeah so basically throughout my undergrad what i did is i was quantifying nature versus nurture in three subcortical structures of the human and now what i'd like to do is basically compare the heritability to the evolution of these structures so for the heritability part just to finish that basically what you do is you input into the model these quantitative measures of brain shape and volume, and it gives you one value between zero and 100%. If it's 0% heritable, it's nurture. And then if it's 100% heritable, it's nature.
0: Excellent. Okay, so like you were saying, you haven't just worked in humans, but you've also been looking at the heritability of these subcortical structures, right? So we're not talking about the, the lobes, The the frontal lobe, we're talking about things that are happening beneath those lobes.
1: Yeah. So I have these values for three subcortical structures, the striatum, the thalamus, and the globus pallidus. Mm -hmm. And I basically have the heritability value for their shape and their volume. And now what I'm trying to see is whether or not the parts that are more heritable are also more preserved across the phylogenetic tree. And so the phylogenetic tree is basically the tree that shows the evolutionary relationship of different animal species with each other. Mm-hmm. And so more specifically, I'm going to be looking at non-human primates. So they're kind of branch of the phylogenetic tree. And there's already somebody at the lab working with chimpanzee data. Basically, what I did was I, we planned it such that I'd have one animal per node of the phylogenetic tree. And right okay. now what I'm doing is I am extracting these three structures from each MRI of each animal. So I have a chimpanzee, an orangutan, a gorilla, a gibbon, a marmoset, a capuchin, and a vervet.
0: These are all different species of primate? Yeah. And you're also talking about nodes in this tree. So like, how many times has the tree split then between all those different species?
1: About Five times? Well, so you have the great apes. So the humans in the yeah. great ape category. So we are most, most related to the chimpanzee and also to the bonobo. Then next in the tree we are closest to after that is, I believe, the, gor- the orangutan, then the gorilla. and that, So those are the great apes I have. Then yeah. the next closest type of animal to the humans is going to be the old world monkeys. So those would be the gibbon.
0: So like at the gibbon, it split. We had the old world monkeys. Then it split and gave rise to one branch that was the, the great apes. Yeah. And then one branch that was something else.
1: Sorry. So we have the non-human primates. Then we have three nodes in the non-human primates. You have the great apes, the old world monkeys, and the new world monkeys. And the humans are part of the great apes. So they're closer to every other Animal that's within the great ape category, but then within the great ape category, there are a bunch of sub groupings as well. Okay. Then the next node that's closest to the great apes would be the Old World monkeys, and then the final node would be the New World monkeys. So if you look at this tree structure as going from human all the way down to capuchin, we have eight non-human primate brains, and what we've been doing is we've been basically creating hybrid brains. To see basically how new world monkeys have transformed up this phylogenetic tree all the way to the human.
0: Okay, so we can really think of just one part of the tree as this extension that has kind of this linear progression upwards from the new world to the old world to the great apes. Yeah. And just so I'm also clear, you were specifically working on studying three subcortical structures, and you're still focusing on those structures throughout history and the evolution of those structures through these different primates up to the great apes and then to humans, which I presume are at the tip, tip, tip of the great apes in terms of their evolution. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I remember to thank you yet for being here. So if I have, then here we go. A bit of a broken record. And if I haven't, consider this thank you. As always, I'd love to hear your feedback, whether you liked Michael's poem or these kinds of little breaks we have. You can always reach me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or by email, and back to the episode. Okay, so you did mention that you were studying the heritability proportions in these three substructures. I'm curious, do you have the numbers on hand? Like, How heritable is the volume of the globus pallidus versus the striatum?
1: Well, the, the basically the conclusion has been that they're all unbelievably heritable in general, So basically, I'll just quickly go over why people use heritability models, because just like any statistical model, heritability models do have to simplify reality, and they do have a lot of limitations. However, it's not that important, the exact percentage you get. You're kind of trying to see, is something heritable or not? And of course, it is interesting to compare different parts of the brain to each other to see which ones are More heritable than others, which is why having a binary output of like heritable, not heritable, would not be helpful. But Mm -hmm. another reason why they're often used is that they're a prerequisite for future imaging genetic studies. So, research trying to connect specific genes to specific properties of the brain, like what gene controls total brain volume. A prerequisite would be to know that total brain volume is actually heritable. Because if total brain volume is not at all controlled by genetics, then there's no point really in trying to find out what gene controls this trait. Um, so that's kind of one utility of it. The other main one, too, is that it's a very straightforward way to look at the genetic relationship between two different traits at the same time. So for instance, if you're you know doing research on the hippocampus and you find that the hippocampus is highly genetically correlated with the striatum. And you often examine the hippocampus within the context of a specific disease, such as Alzheimer's disease. You can then do research in the stri- on the striatum within the context of Alzheimer's disease. It's a very straightforward model to allow you to calculate the genetic relationship between two traits without actually knowing about the whole genetic code of the subjects mm-hmm. you're looking
0: at. That makes sense. It's a little more of like a coarse grain approach as opposed to like fine-tuning actual genes. Mm -hmm. You need
1: less like smaller samples. Uh, It's a lot less computationally demanding. Mm -hmm. And so it's often just like a prerequisite for future work. But it's also interesting because say what we found in terms of our results. So we obviously found that these three subcortical structures that are involved in motor control and habit formation are generally highly heritable. Like everything was pretty much had a heritability for volumes and shape of over 70%. But then just the volumes had a heritability of over 80% usually. So volumes are more heritable than highly specific shape measures. But what was interesting is we found in the striatum that, you know, the parts of the striatum that are supposedly related to alcoholism were actually a lot more heritable. There was like a, a clear divide on the shape of the striatum where. The part related to alcohol usage was actually way more heritable than the part that isn't. So that was some an interesting thing that we found. But overall, all of them were quite heritable. The way this is interesting in terms of evolution is that people think that if something's more controlled by genetics, it's very possible that it'll be more preserved across species. And this is because theoretically, we assume that humans are different from their, you know, non-human counterparts because of certain cognitive abilities that have been conferred to us thanks to brain plasticity, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, brain plasticity is related to, you know, how vulnerable a specific region is to the environment. And so, yeah. if something is more heritable, it is quite, it is possible that it is also less plastic through time. And so, basically, that means that maybe. You know, these regions have been more preserved across, you know, evolution because they're not part of the regions of the brain that are related to giving humans cognitive abilities that animals don't have.
0: That's actually fascinating. I had never thought about it that way. I guess certain structures or certain, certain abilities are going to project much further into the future because of their lack of plasticity. We usually think of plasticity as a good thing, but for the propagation of some kind of brain trait uh, through evolution, it's actually, it itself, if, if it had some kind of personality or desires, it, it would not want to be part of any kind of plastic system.
1: Yeah. However, one mm-hmm. thing to consider is that previous research has shown that, say, the, an area that's very plastic, but also very heritable is the hippocampus which is in charge of memory formation so it's not that straightforward also we would like to eventually tie this with previous data on neurodevelopment so the cortex is the surface layer of the brain in charge of all our cognitive abilities whilst the three structures i was looking at are more in charge once again of habit formation and motor control and so previous research in the cortex has shown that areas of the brain that are more evolutionarily expanded so a lot of the cortex so larger that are larger in humans compared to non-human primates also expand a lot faster throughout neural development um, which is really interesting so they have look at brain scans of people as babies and as from you know from age zero to say 14 and they mm-hmm. found that the areas that once again of the cortex that expanded the fastest were the ones that were the largest in humans compared to non-human primates. And if you relate this back to heritability, those areas have also been shown to be less heritable. So this is kind of a... Re- so now we're looking at the relationship between neurodevelopment, evolution, and heritability. And so for for my master's, I'm curious to see if this like relationship is preserved in the subcortex.
0: Okay. Would you see the same... Rapid increase in subcortical structural size in the same way that you see that rapid increase in the cortex, like from zero to 14 years of age? Or is a baby born with a hippocampus that's approximately the same size as it will be for the rest of life? How does the growth occur? If,
1: I guess because the hippocampus is a very special structure. We have a few people at our lab also that are kind of experts on the hippocampus. So that's kind of a, I'm a bit less familiar, but mm-hmm. so it is very plastic though, and it is in charge of learning and memory, and it is known. be altered in alzheimer's disease that's pretty much the extent of what i know about the hippocampus Um, the subcortical structures there was a really cool study done on the neurodevelopment of their shape and size and i know that the volume peaks at about like 12 i think for girls and about 14 for boys and then it sort of slightly seems to go down a little bit the volume so they definitely do change throughout neurodevelopment for sure like you're not born with a striatum that's like a specific size and then it remains that size throughout your you know childhood to teenagehood. Um, it definitely right. evolves especially with hormones too. It's very different there are huge sex differences in these structures throughout neurodevelopment as well.
2: Cool. Yeah, we're I
1: guess we're hoping that from this previous study we know in terms of shape what parts of these structures kind of expand a little bit faster, what specific regions of them do. And so it'd be cool to connect that to evolution.
0: Yeah. So shape and volume. These are these two kind of themes that keep coming back again and again. Shape and volume. How do they change relative to time skills on evolution? Time skills of just growth from, you know, a fetus to a teenager. So I like that we have kind of kept coming back to these ideas of space and time, beginning with the spatial resolution of MRI. You can't escape space and time. The two fundamental things of our universe. Uh, and with that, I'd like to come to our final question, which is completely independent, potentially, from the uh, academics that we've been focused on. And if you've been listening to the last few episodes, you might know what this question is, but I'll ask it anyways. If you had an audience of a thousand people, you had their undivided attention, and you could tell them one thing right now, what would that be?
1: You could never do too much math. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, though, because the... The more work I do with, and I try to use new techniques and stuff and I find the main wall that I'll hit is I won't understand something maybe as in depth as I'd like to because I might lack the formal mathematical training in order to fully (laughs) understand it. So
0: do as much math as you can. I totally back that. As somebody who would like to teach math in the future, I totally back that. I think math is not only helpful, it's also a beautiful thing.
1: It is. Yeah, there's a lot of great YouTube videos on the magic of math and different numbers.
0: I don't doubt it. I feel like I've probably seen many dozens if not hundreds of those already. <laughs> anyway, this is this has been really nice. I'm I'm glad that we got to discuss your research once again. This has been Nadia Blostein, so thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and have a lovely afternoon. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at Abstract Cast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or, if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly, on Sundays, and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts, so... Feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.